so our patients rack up diagnosis. I call it alphabet soup. Yep. How many acronyms do you have? You know, it's really all. I think of it as one disease process going mm-hmm. on in your body. That's a complex, overlapping thing with neuroimmune genetic. That's really neuroimmune genetic, or like the three main. You know, your EDS is the genetic, the mast cell, maybe POTS antibodies is the immune, and the the neuro is you know all this wacky ass autonomic symptoms you got. Mm-hmm. Hey there. I want to welcome you to episode one of In Sickness and in Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. This podcast and any of its associated content does not constitute medical advice. I want to be very clear about that. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. In Sickness and in Health, we'll be about telling our stories as patients and talking about important issues related to health. If you want to know why I think these topics are so important, go back and listen to episode zero, Welcome to In Sickness and In Health. I explain why I started the podcast, what I've learned along the way, and what I hope the show will be. We're all going through this together, but I cannot stress enough how different we all are, even if we have identical medical files. There are so many factors that go into shaping a person's experience of health and illness. Just because something worked for one person does not mean it will work for you or anyone else. So, I just want to ask my audience to respect the very personal decisions of my guests and remember that the choices of others do not affect or reflect anything onto their own choices. I had an acute onset of dysautonomia after a snowboarding concussion in 2010. I think like many patients, when when I first got sick, I sat around racking my brain trying to think of like, how did I end up like this? What Mm -hmm. did I do? What happened to me? That's Lauren Stiles. She's a lawyer from New York who lives with the autoimmune disease Sjogren's syndrome and dysautonomia that includes postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, inappropriate sinus tachycardia, and neurocardiogenic syncope. She also happens to be the president of Dysautonomia International, a nonprofit founded in 2012 by patients, caregivers, physicians, and researchers dedicated to assisting people living with various forms of dysautonomia. I hope I haven't already lost you with the big, weird words. You may have never heard of Sjogren's, and you probably have never heard of dysautonomia or its various forms. That's okay. A lot of people haven't. Put simply, dysautonomia is a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. That's the part that's responsible for all the automatic things that are supposed to happen in your body. Things like your heart rate, your blood pressure, your body temperature, and a bunch of other stuff. If you hear people talking about your fight or flight response, they're talking about your autonomic nervous system. Lauren's going to explain all about that soon. But first, I want to tell you why I made these first few episodes about dysautonomia. I'm launching this show with a series to honor Dysautonomia Awareness Month. The month of October is one for awareness fatigue. I know that. I'm sure you already know that it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But did you know that it's also the Awareness Month for Down Syndrome, Spina Bifida, and Domestic Violence? Then there's the Awareness Weeks for Invisible Illness, Becker Muscular Dystrophy, and Mental Illness. October 15th 
is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Day. I know. I'm already sad and exhausted, too. I even left a few out. All of these are really important issues, and all of them need more research and funding and understanding. But a lot of the awareness campaigns often leave us feeling like not much has been accomplished. They don't generally further a better understanding of the issues or the unique challenges that they can present to individuals. But I'm hoping with this podcast, that's something that we can do. Dysautonomia International's slogan for Dysautonomia Awareness Month is Make Some Noise for Turquoise. So that's exactly what we're doing. As the show goes on, I plan to feature a wide variety of health experiences, and I hope to have voices that can speak to all the causes that I just mentioned. But dysautonomia is personal for me. It affects me every single day, and has for most of my life. So I wanted to kick off this show with a series of interviews about something that's very close to my heart. So now I'm going to let Lauren explain a little bit more about what exactly dysautonomia is. If you already know all about it and want to skip to the rest of the interview, you can jump forward to the 19-minute mark. But if you take a listen, you might actually learn something new. You'll have to forgive the sound quality. We recorded at Lauren's mother-in-law's house while the family was making dinner, and then finished up the interview outside after dinner to the tune of late summer New York cicadas. Dysautonomia is an umbrella term that includes many different disorders of the autonomic nervous system. Dysautonomia is not a specific diagnosis. It's like a term similar to cancer. There's no disease called cancer. There's a whole bunch of different diseases that are forms of cancer. Okay, the most common form of dysautonomia is called neurocardiogenic syncope. And a lot of people might know it by a, a name that was used in the past, which some doc- doctors still use, vasovagal syncope. So this type of dysautonomia impacts one out of every five people, which is really shocking. It's not usually referred to as you know, a form of dysautonomia when people talk about it. You might have met someone that fainted and their doctor tells them, oh, I had a vasovagal attack. So most of the people who experience a syncopal, a fainting spell from neurocardiogenic syncope only have this happen to them once or twice in their life. And it's not something that happens very often and it isn't really debilitating. Of course, you know, if you faint while you're driving or if you fall off a ladder, this can cause serious injury and there's a risk, but most people have this once or twice and it's not a big deal. But there's a subset of people with neurocardiogenic syncope who have very debilitating symptoms they can faint several times a day, and some of them require pacemakers, and it's, it's the same diagnosis, but it's like a whole different world. I was diagnosed with vasovagal syncope when I was 12, which is the same thing. It's just the term they used back in the day when I was diagnosed, and I would faint about once a year. It was usually me doing something kind of stupid, like going to a rock concert in the sun all day and sneaking beer and not drinking Gatorade instead. I, I have to say... How does anyone not pass out under those circumstances? <laughs> I, it's unfathomable yes. to me that somebody could yes. like go to a festival and be in the sun all day I was, and not uh, faint. I had a, um, like a standing joke with my friends. Every year that we went to Lollapalooza in New York City at Randall's Island with you know 30,000 other college and teenage kids, I fainted every single summer. Um, but it was, you know, I was fine the rest of the year. It wasn't really a, a major problem in my life. And my doctor had checked out my heart and said everything was okay. 
So another form of dysautonomia, probably the second most common form, is POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Which is not to be confused with uh, POTS disease. Yes, POTS, P-O-T-T apostrophe S, POTS disease, was named after an old physician from uh, I think like the 1700s. That's extrapulmonary tuberculosis. Funny story, a little tangent for you. When I was first diagnosed with POTS, orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, right? Um, I went to the ER for something and told them I had POTS. And all of a sudden, they put me in my own room in the ER, which I thought was great. You know, a little privacy in the ER is always nice. But then they wouldn't let my family in. And all of the uh, nurses and doctors that came in were wearing like infectious gear. (laughs) So I said, what's going on? And they said, well, you have tuberculosis. And I said, no, I don't. (laughs) So then that's when I realized that they thought I had POTS, tuberculosis POTS, you know. So I don't, thankfully. And what's really interesting is that POTS disease impacts about four people in the United States per year. Oh, wow. Yet almost every doctor is trained on this and knows what it is. Wow. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS, impacts one to three million Americans and millions more around the world. We don't have good estimates in other countries, but it's certainly not exclusive to the United States. And the the majority of medical schools are not teaching their students about POTS. Uh, some are starting to, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. And we hope that this continues to spread so that uh, in the future, our patient community will have better care and people will be diagnosed in a more timely manner. And doctors will believe in it because like we talked about before we started recording, some doctors, for whatever reason, think that this does not exist. Yes, POTS is not Santa Claus. You don't have to believe in it for it to be real. POTS can be tested for with objective testing uh, using a tilt table test. And if that's not available, an orthostatic standing test that can be done at, in any doctor's office. And can you um, just explain what the, the difference between those two are? Sure. A tilt table test is, um, it sounds kind of terrifying, but it, it really isn't. You lay on a table and they strap you down to the table with these big kind of Velcro things across your chest and your legs. And they hook you up to uh, blood pressure monitoring, something, uh, an EKG usually to measure your heart rate. So they tilt you up uh, to usually about 70 degrees. Every lab has a, a little bit of a different protocol, but they usually tilt you upright. Your head is above your feet. You're not upside down. And they're just looking to see how your heart, re- heart rate and blood pressure change between laying down and being upright. And the reason the tilt is used is because when you stand on your feet, like a regular standing test, you just went you know, in your bed and you lay down and then you stood up, your leg muscles will actually impact your heart rate and blood pressure because your legs, when you constrict your muscles in your legs, they actually um, help return blood to your heart. So the reason they use the tilt is because when you're on that angle and you're on the table, you're not really using your leg muscles to stand up. But the, the testing is similar. And what they're looking for in POTS is a heart rate in adults uh, over age 18, a heart rate increase of 30 beats per minute or more between laying down and standing up. And some patients uh, with POTS have a slight drop in blood pressure. Uh, Some, their blood pressure remains stable. That's called normotensive. And some have uh, an increase in blood pressure. If your blood pressure decreases significantly within the first three minutes of tilting you, you might not actually have POTS. You might have something else called orthostatic hypotension. Which is another form of dysautonomia. That is another form of dysautonomia, yes. 
And so I think a lot of POTS patients, and including me, when I was first diagnosed, I was kind of confused about all these different diagnostic criteria, too. A lot of doctors that I've spoken to are under the impression that POTS has to involve a drop in blood pressure, which is not actually true. Common common myths that we hear from patients, which are usually told to them by their doctors, is that, oh, well, you didn't faint on a tilt table test, so therefore you can't have POTS. POTS does not require fainting to be diagnosed. In fact, most POTS patients don't actually faint. They feel like they're going to faint all the time. They're always in that state. It's called pre-syncope. Syncope means fainting. So that that pre-fainting phase, you might live in that phase every single day, all day long, but the majority of POTS patients don't actually faint. And it might be because when they really feel sick and they feel that fainting coming on, they have enough of a warning that they can sit down and put their feet up if they have to. Yeah, the only time that I don't have enough of a warning is usually if I'm sick with a virus. Mm-hmm. And that's the only time that I ever actually... Yes. There are a subset of POTS patients who have overlapping neurocardiogenic syncope. So that makes the diagnosis a little bit more confusing. And that's one reason you might want to use a tilt test to do your diagnostics. Because um, it's, it's a little more precise than doing the orthostatic standing test. I like to describe POTS as the wedding crasher of the dysautonomias. It likes to show up to parties it's not invited to. So like Lauren pointed out in her earlier clip, it can show up in the setting of genetic conditions, immune dysfunction, and neurological disease. Like many POTS patients, I have it thanks to a genetic connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which you probably haven't heard about, but if you stay tuned to the podcast, I'm sure you'll learn quite a bit about it. Other forms of dysautonomia tend to be rarer, but they're certainly, if you're part of this patient community, there are things you've probably heard about. Pure autonomic failure is a type of autonomic failure that is idiopathic, meaning we don't know what's causing it. Um, But patients with pure autonomic failure can have symptoms like severe constipation because their GI tract is not working. They have orthostatic hypotension, which is the uh, severe drop in blood pressure. And PAF patients have, the, the doctors think that this is caused by sort of problems in the spinal cord and the autonomic nerves. So um, it's not as common as POTS though. Uh, another type of dysautonomia you might hear about is multiple system atrophy. This impacts about 50,000 Americans. And so it's uh, considered a rare disease. It's a Parkinson's-like disease. It tends to impact older adults. I often hear um, POTS patients, you know, teenagers or 20-something-year-old people who are worried that they have MSA. And certainly, even I remember the very first day I was diagnosed with POTS, I had gone on the Vanderbilt website and read about all these different types of dysautonomia. And when you're first reading about them, they all sound the same. (laughs) So I was like, oh, gosh, I hope I don't have that one, you know, Um, because MSA is a rapid neurodegenerative disease and it's fatal. Yeah. So I was worried. But um, once you learn more about these diseases, you realize that there are very distinguishing features. And so if you are, a, uh, if you are under age 40, I would not worry about MSA. If you've been sick for years, I would not worry about MSA because if you've been sick for years, you would probably be dead if you had MSA, which is very sad, you know. But if you're able to type on your keyboard and you've been sick for 10 years, you don't have MSA because people with MSA lose their motor control pretty quickly. And most... Uh, I've been told by the autonomic researchers who study MSA that most MSA patients um, tend to end up in a wheelchair and, you know, basically unable to talk or feed themselves within a year or two of their diagnosis. So this is very different than POTS, very different than neurocardiogenic syncope. 
Um, and it, it tends to be in the older adult population and comes with a lot of motor symptoms that are different than the autonomic symptoms. Mm. Those, are, those are considered the main primary autonomic disorders. There are a few others that are extremely rare. But secondary autonomic disorders uh, are huge, possibly more common than all the other primary disorders put together. Um, just as an example, diabetes is considered the number one cause of autonomic neuropathy. And autonomic neuropathy is when the nerves are, are not working right or are actually damaged by an underlying disease process. So if you look at the global diabetes population, including all the type 1, type 2, you know, different types of diabetes, 25% of all diabetics will eventually develop diabetic autonomic neuropathy. And this is actually what makes diabetes such a dangerous disease to have because it causes the cardiovascular complications mm -hmm. after someone has had diabetes for a long time. So 25% of all diabetics is 69 million people worldwide. Wow. So that's just one form of secondary dysautonomia. There are a ton of diseases associated with secondary dysautonomias. For example, research shows that 30 to 60% of MS patients have some amount of secondary autonomic dysfunction, usually related to blood pressure dysregulation and bladder control issues. And there's a growing body of research linking autonomic dysfunction to other diseases, especially autoimmune disease. As Lauren put it, it's pretty much almost every disease. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to have a disease that doesn't involve the autonomic nervous system to some degree. Right. But we haven't been able to really measure it very well, so right. it, it hasn't really right. made its way into I mean, the awareness the of that. The whole field of autonomic neurology is not really well known. I had one neurologist who was a very funny guy, he was very nice, and I started talking to him about autonomic neurology, and he said, oh, that's the bastard stepchild of neurology. <laughs> and I kind of, I understand what he means. You know, it's, it's not uh, the most popular topic at the research conferences, but it really should be because mm -hmm. it is um, involved in almost every disease. And it's so wacky and interesting. I don't <laughs> understand why all neurologists well, aren't like, what's going on wow, here? Wow, this is cool. Yeah. It's, I think part of the problem is that it's very confusing. Yeah. To, to be someone who specializes in autonomic disorders, you really have to be a jack of all trades. Most of medicine is divided up into an organ. If you're a GI specialist, you study the GI tract and its various components. You know, if you're a, a cardiologist, you study the heart. So people who are into autonomic disorders have to study all of the organs that the autonomic system controls. And Which is then, like pretty much your whole body. <laughs> right. And um, much of it is, uh, I think, probably one of the areas of autonomic disorders that is studied the least, but is coming into its own in terms of the research. Uh, we've known for a long time that the autonomic nervous system controls the heart and the bladder and the GI tract and the, the blood pressure, but it also controls the immune system to a large degree. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a very um, exciting new area of medicine where doctors are looking at um, regulating the autonomic nervous system to alter the immune system. So now that we have our definitions out of the way, I like to ask everyone about how their family deals with illness and how they think their cultural background might have influenced those attitudes. Um, I think that um, my family was generally supportive and I don't think they really understood what was happening to me, but I don't think I understood what was happening to me in the beginning. Um, it was a very abrupt change. I went from working full-time 70 hours a week to really not being able to get off the couch like overnight. Um, and 
I think, you know, culturally, um, I come from a middle class, you know, Long Island, New York family. But my my family has those kind of Protestant work ethic values, which I don't think they're limited to Protestants. There's plenty of cultures that, you know, you're just supposed to, you know, quit your belly aching and get to work. <laughs> so there's a little bit of that. Um, I did have a relative long after, uh, after I was diagnosed with, um, I ended up being diagnosed with POTS and an autoimmune disease. My aunt came up to me uh, six months after the diagnosis. She whispered in my ear one night after everyone had gone to bed. It was, she was in town for, the, for Christmas. And she said, oh, Lauren, I have that autoimmune disease too. And I looked at her and I was like, I can't believe you never mentioned this before. <laughs> but that was her cultural and upbringing. You know, she's very old fashioned and very proper and you just don't talk about your health issues kind of, you know, that was her thing. So, um, you know, I, I, I can't be really mad at her. It's not her fault. I, I probably would have gotten this whether she told me or not. But I think that, that the change in, in the younger generations being willing to talk about their health problems um, it's probably a good thing because, you know, your family history is very, very important to your health and to your children's health if you should have children someday. It was at this point in the interview that we stopped to eat dinner and then went outside to finish recording. So at any point, have you experienced denial, whether it be yourself or from family members or from doctors? Um, all of the above. <laughs> I went through a phase when I first got sick, as, as probably many people do, of thinking that I must have just had a bad flu or I had food poisoning and it would just go away in a week or two. And then, you know, weeks drag into months and months drag into years. And I'm probably around the, I think the three to six month mark, I got really scared and I just thought like, you know, what, what is this? <laughs> this is obviously not food poisoning if I'm still sick three months later. Um, and I, but I did go through a denial phase in the beginning. And I mean, I even tried to go to work that um, two days after my initial concussion, uh, I woke up really sick. And, but the following Monday, I tried to go to work and um, I fainted at work for, I wasn't doing anything that would, you know, stress you out and make you faint. Um, and then uh, I actually drove myself to the ER, which is probably the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. But I, I was embarrassed and I didn't want to tell anyone at work. So um, yeah, I got to the ER and I was waiting on the triage line standing up and I fainted again. <laughs> you know, they probably thought I was fake fainting to cut the line, which I right. wasn't. Um, but anyways, yeah, uh, I was asked to sit down and probably waited another hour before someone saw me. But yeah, I've, I went through some denial. I think um, my family, for the most part, they were supportive, but I think in the beginning especially, they just thought, you know, that I was losing my mind or mm -hmm. that I was just um, being dramatic or whatever. And, and I really actually wasn't being dramatic. I was trying to keep my symptoms to myself and I didn't want them to worry, but I literally couldn't walk like four days after the concussion. So. I, there was no way to hide that, you know, you can't, there's a lot of things with chronic illness that you can put on a brave face and slap some lipstick on and still go out of the house. But when you have something so physically limiting that you can't stand at all, um, it's hard to, to fake it till you make it. You, you ever hear that saying, fake it till you make it? It's my life's motto. Yes. <laughs> so I've, I've become the master of that now. But, um, 
Denial from doctors, well, I think that's a pretty much universal experience amongst chronic illness patients, um, not just POTS patients, which is what I was dealing with, but I talk to patients with, I mean, even, even breast cancer patients. I talk to patients in my infusion center. Uh, I get an infusion every week, and I talk to people who have esophageal cancer, brain cancer, breast cancer, and even they go through this, oh, you're not really that sick, or, oh, this is just lady problems, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the lady just, problems is a big one. You're just having hormone changes. Don't worry, you know? And then, like, because they push, they end up getting a, a really awful diagnosis of cancer. But it's it's not just, you know, it's not comforting to know, but at least it's not just, you know, I don't know. There's probably a better way to say that. It's not just um, POTS patients that this happens to. It, it really does happen to a, a large swath of of the entire country or the entire world. And a really big report just came out mm -hmm. from the Institute of Medicine talking about diagnostic errors and diagnostic delay and how it's so widespread. That every person will likely experience a diagnostic error at some point in their life that could be potentially fatal. Yeah. Um, and what I found most interesting, there was a prior report that came out a few years ago on this subject, and I forget the title of it, but what they found was um, our rate of accurate diagnosis, even with all of the modern testing equipment and the tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> that you spend in the right, process. Even with all of the imaging studies and, and diagnostic tests that you can get now, uh, and the huge advances we've made in medicine, our rate of misdiagnosis has not changed since the early 1900s. Yeah, that's not surprising. So, um, you know, there's something wrong with the way the system is set up. And I, I suspect, this is my hunch, I don't have any data to prove it, but in, in the old days, we didn't have all this fantastic diagnostic technology. But what we did have is a physician that would spend time with you and he or she, well, back then it was usually a he, would put their hands on you and would look to see, is your spine out of line? Do you have, uh, how, how strong are your muscles? You know, literally physically touching the patient is like a lost art form. Mm -hmm. You rarely see that, maybe in a neuro exam. Um, and I've noticed that as a patient. I would go through whole doctor visits. And not that I'm, it sounds weird, like I don't want someone to be touching me, but the using all of your senses to diagnose your patient mm -hmm. has been replaced by, oh, let me send you for an MRI and some blood tests. Right. So maybe we have gained that technology, but we've lost another form of another tool or set of tools that can diagnose. And, and part of that is because physicians don't have the time. They, mm -hmm. I they, mean, that's are, probably the largest contributor to yeah. this. So maybe if we combined the new exciting diagnostic technologies with that old school, spend time with your patient, listen to your patient, actually know your patient, be their doctor for years, not, you know, I, every time you go somewhere, it seems like you see another doctor. They don't know your history. They don't know your family. They don't know that you're the best soccer player in town. You know, that old school home, small town doctor, that's something that's very rare. I actually happen to have a primary care doctor who's known my family for two generations. Oh, wow. Um, and I drive an hour away from home to continue seeing her. Um, and, you know, some of my specialists are like, why don't you get a primary care doctor closer to your house? I'm like, no way. I'm keeping this one. She's really good. Yeah, I mean, and when, regardless of whether it's primary care or a specialist, when you find a good doctor who knows you, right. it's, it's so hard to give that up. Yeah. 
So, um, I, and I wish every, you know, I wish everyone could have that. And I wish that all of my doctors could be more like that. I'm, I think after five years of having a chronic illness, I finally do have a good team, but I went through some real doozies trying to find a good team oh, yeah. as, I, as I know many other chronic illness patients have kind of gone through that process. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad. Especially when you think about people who, you know, might not have the skills that you or I have. Um, I mean, how lucky are we that just English is our first language? Yeah. You know, like that just there's so many factors <clears throat> that go into to being able to advocate for yourself and communicate effectively right. and understand what's going on that like it really just breaks my heart. Yes, me too. I, I've had some I've really recently was actually talking to um Dr. Jeffrey Barris, who is a cardiologist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, about this very subject. We, we were discussing the IOM report and all of the patients he sees, a lot of them have extensive t periods of misdiagnosis before they get to him. And um, it, I was thinking about and talking to him about, you know, it took me two years and over a hundred doctors to get accurately diagnosed. That's like, that's a crazy number of doctors. Mm -hmm. And I know that had I not been um, in an economic position to be able to do that, had I not had really good insurance, had I not had a family that could take the time off of work to drive me, because I was in no condition to drive myself, um, the ability to travel out of state, you know, these are all things that helped me got diagnosed. And it still took two years. <laughs> right. You know, right. and also being a very stubborn, headstrong patient. I think a lot of people, after you've been to 20 doctors and they all tell you you're crazy, maybe you're just going to start believing it. I did. And, yeah. and I was that very obstinate patient that was just like, no. <laughs> if I was going through this appointment and it was, you know, a waste of my time, I could usually tell within the first five, 10 minutes yeah. that it was going to be. So I wouldn't even waste my energy and try to convince them or fight with them. I just said, okay, thanks a lot. You're fired. Bye. <laughs> I'd pay my bill and leave. That's fantastic. Um, because you just, I didn't have the energy to fight. I just wanted some, I knew if I kept looking, eventually I'd find that needle in the haystack of a doctor who yeah. could help. But I didn't have the energy to, um, to argue with everyone that was making no sense to me. Oh yeah. It's exhausting. I mean, I, you know, had <clears throat> symptoms for 20 years before I got an accurate diagnosis. And there was a, a long period of time during that where I thought, okay, I guess I do have this anxiety disorder that they keep telling me that I have. Mm. Ultimately, it turned out I did not. Um, but it wasn't until I had to get really, really sick before I had the confidence to say, no, I know my body. I know that there's something wrong here. Mm -hmm. Like the, the damage that had been done by other physicians of, of just dismissing me almost immediately and not listening to me and telling me that like, oh, it's just anxiety. Even the, the SVT was always anxiety until they actually caught it on a monitor. And they, the doctor's office called me about 10 minutes after I dropped the monitor off and was like, you need to come back here immediately. Yeah. I had a, uh, an interesting story I heard from uh, Dr. Blair Grubb, who is a very famous uh, dysautonomia expert in, uh, the at the University of Toledo. And he, um, he was talking about some patients of his who had been diagnosed with psychogenic seizures, meaning, you know, that they had a seizure that was sort of caused by their own mental health problems. That wasn't sort of a real seizure. It was um, not necessarily that they're intentionally faking it, but mm -hmm. that it isn't 
an organic uh, disease-based seizure. So this, you know, anyone being diagnosed with this, it's probably rather um, frustrating and angering. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he put uh, an implantable loop recorder, which is just a little, it's like a halter monitor that goes under your skin that's the size of a quarter. Mm -hmm. And they, it put it in your chest area and it monitors your, uh, your heart rate for up to three years. And um, they can download the information uh, without opening your chest again. And it's a pretty simple procedure. So he started using this. And some of the people who had been diagnosed with psychogenic seizures, sure enough, <laughs> when they were having their, quote, fake seizure, what was really happening is that their heart was stopping. And when their heart stopped, it, it would be a disruption of blood flow to their brain, and they would faint. Mm -hmm. And unless you happen to catch that, uh, it, it wouldn't show up on an EEG unless they happen to have one of these cardiac right. Uh, problems. And that's a huge limitation to a lot of the diagnostic testing that we have is like unless that issue is happening exactly at that second when they're right. doing the test, as far as they're concerned, you don't have that thing. Right. Oh, how many times have you had like, you know, a weird rash or a strange muscle tick or something that you want to show the doctor, mm -hmm. but when you go to the doctor's office, it's not happening. <laughs> One kind of uh, useful tool that we talk about with a lot of patients on the online support groups is if you're having a weird uh, visible symptom that may or may not be happening by the time you get to your doctor, use your cell phone, yeah. take a video, take a photo, you know, um, document it. And then you don't necessarily have to freak out and make an appointment the next day, but just on your next follow-up, say, hey, mm -hmm. you know, I had this really weird blotchy rash all over my face, you know, what is this? And if, um, if you're not having it when you're at the doctor, they're probably not gonna take it too seriously, but right. if you have some photos to show them, um, that could help you figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that was actually quite helpful for me as well. One of the things that I want to do with this podcast is highlight the incredible diversity of advocacy that is happening within patient communities. Patients are reaching out within their own disease communities to raise awareness and support, both for their own conditions and for chronic health conditions in general. Lauren went a more traditional route with starting a nonprofit organization, but Dysautonomia International has accomplished so much in the three years since its inception. So I asked Lauren to talk a little bit about what they've been able to do with the organization. So it was, it was a process um, to decide to, to do this, but um, it took about nine months for me to get diagnosed with POTS, and I actually diagnosed myself and brought it to the attention of my neurologist, and he um, ended up confirming. You know, I knew I needed a doctor to confirm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after that, I, I pushed to find the root cause um, because I assumed, perhaps a little naively, that um, if I could find the cause of my small fiber right. neuropathy... That there would be a solution. That would be yeah. the cause of my POTS and I would get all better. Right. So um, I did find the cause of my small fiber neuropathy. I have another autoimmune disease called Sjogren's Syndrome. And, but along that journey between uh, no diagnosis and then POTS diagnosis, looking for the cause, and then found the cause. And um, I created a blog about a month or two after I was diagnosed with POTS. I started a blog called POTS Girl, G-R-R-L. Oh, that's you. Yes, that's me. <laughs> I didn't realize. <laughs> and um, initially, I started it just as a way to keep my family and friends in the loop because I had been in the hospital for two months when I got diagnosed. Oh, wow. Uh, because I was misdiagnosed with cancer. That was a whole lot of fun. Oh, yes. That's Thank fun. you, Cornell. So anyways, uh, they were constantly check. Friends and family were um, calling and checking on me. And, and I'm so thankful that they 
cared. You know, it, it, it is reassuring when you get those people checking in on you. But I was exhausted and, and just didn't have the energy to tell the same stupid misdiagnosis story over and over and over again. So I thought, let me write a blog about this and, and to explain to my friends and family what POTS is, because it's certainly something no one had heard of, including me. Um, so I started writing about it. And then like really quickly, I started getting emails from people all over the world. And I was just like, how are these people finding my little blog? <laughs> So um, I even started getting emails from doctors. So it, the, then I sort of changed the, um, I felt like the need to educate other patients. Uh, not that everyone needs educating, you know, but there's so many young people that have this who don't have a science background, who maybe haven't even gotten to college yet and maybe haven't even taken freshman biology, you know, um, biology in high school. Maybe they're just in junior high or, you know, ninth graders or whatever. So. I started writing about POTS like in a way that I thought lay people would understand and in and, and I was sort of like talking to patients like this is what you need to know about this if you think you have it and it really took off I had a huge following and I was shocked it was never my intention I was just trying to talk to my relatives you know <laughs> so um, after I had a big enough following I thought well maybe I should take this and turn it into like a real organization like we have momentum and we should use it to do something. So along the, around the same time is when I got diagnosed with Sjogren's and I started getting a little better when we treated the Sjogren's directly and a little more energy and I thought, you should start a nonprofit. <laughs> um, so I blogged about it to see what kind of response it would get. And I actually had spoken to um, existing dysautonomia nonprofits. I was never looking to start something new. I thought, um, I live in the Hamptons and I'm a lawyer and I'm pretty good at fundraising because I've done it for other charities. So I thought, let me just work with an existing group and just raise a lot of money every year and donate it to research. So I, I spoke to um, all of, or reached out to all of the existing dysautonomia groups and really um, didn't get a great response. <laughs> so some were sort of out of business, were not filing their taxes anymore. Some were not interested in, in raising money for research. Some just didn't respond. So I thought, all right, well, I guess I gotta start something new. <laughs> um, and I found uh, some incredible people that I had met through uh, Facebook you know, support groups and blogs and whatnot. And um, we incorporated and we launched October 1st, 2012. And we, <laughs> uh, we launched from like literally my kitchen table, <laughs> as many nonprofits do. Um, but from the very beginning, we had a vision of creating a global movement. We really, really wanted to aim big. So that's why we called it Dysautonomia International. I didn't want Dysautonomia New York or Dysautonomia United States. You right. know? <laughs> why box yourself in? Right. We, we really thought um, there's so many people that have this. We're, my, blo my, my silly little blog was already being contacted by people from all over the world. So I just... Um, I thought I wanted those people to feel welcome to participate and get involved too. And there's so few doctors that study this that um, I wanted to be able to fund research in other countries if people had good ideas. So we, we went for the, the big name right from the get-go. <laughs> Aim high. It was sort of, you know, wishful thinking. And, yeah. and we, are, we have grown um, so quickly that it was 
um, a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, I actually, I did not realize that you only started in 2012. That's incredible. Yeah, we, well, we kicked off the very first day, we kicked off the first Global Dysautonomia Awareness Month campaign. And um, it, it let people latched on, you know, they, they liked the idea. And I really think that patients are so motivated to get involved and help because they've all been through this difficult mm -hmm. experience. They know how hard it is to get care. Um, they know there's not enough research. We don't have enough good treatments. So they, they need a platform. Um, it's, you know, anyone can throw a little fundraiser, but if you, ra you know, you raise two or $3,000, what do you do with it? Where does it go? How's it really making a difference? So we thought if we collectively do, each of us do our little part here and there and all over the place, that makes a huge difference collectively. And when you pull that together and you give people a platform, like, I could go to my town board and talk about dysautonomia, but who am I, right? But if I say I'm a volunteer with this international organization and we have this global campaign and we're going to talk to you about it, then people listen. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you have something like if, if something that grants you legitimacy. I mean, right. even just doing this podcast, being able to say like I'm working on this project, here's the website, whatever can I ask you a bunch of extremely personal questions? Right. <laughs> People have been so open with me. It's, yeah. I've really been surprised at I think it's, how, how much um, that changes I'll, things. It's always interesting to me how our new technology, social medias, you know, has, have really made people, their lives are open books now. And that has so many positives and so many negatives. Mm -hmm. But I think about what was it like to have a chronic illness in 1960 when there was no internet and there was no Facebook, <laughs> there was no blogs. And you know, something that I, because I have several friends that are doctors or that are, you know, in residency and training and, and stuff like that to be medical professionals. And something that I hear them say a lot is like, I don't know, we didn't have all these chronic disease problems 50 years ago. And I'm like, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think for one thing, you know, thanks to vaccines and all that stuff, a lot of people that otherwise would have died a lot sooner living to adulthood now and also like we were talking about before culturally being open about medical problems that you're having right. is something that's actually pretty new it's something right. that most people didn't used to talk about and didn't used to complain about and maybe a lot of people just you know lived with this stuff and or they were they were diagnosed with other things you right. know the the so POTS is a is a good example of this it was um, first called POTS in 1993 by Mayo Clinic researchers, but prior to that in 1982, they wrote about it uh, under postural tachycardia syndrome uh, in, a, a, I think, a small series of patients. But even before that, you can dig back in the literature to like the, the Civil, Civil War. Civil War. Yeah. Uh, DaCosta wrote about it. It was called DaCosta syndrome. Uh, other military doctors wrote about it as soldier's heart, which mm -hmm. is interesting because that was all in men. Right. Obviously, we didn't have female soldiers in the Civil War. Well, maybe maybe there was a few, but it was <laughs> few and far between. I do remember having a, a book right. as a child about a woman who dressed up as a man during the Revolutionary right. War. <laughs> Some truly rebellious women yeah. in every sense of the word. But uh, this condition has existed probably as long as people have existed. Right. Um, and it's just come to the forefront because we we have, you know, more ways to diagnose it now, and people start talking about it. Uh, I think a lot of conditions probably had different names and medicine. Think about if you were a doctor, 
the interconnectivity between doctors was not what it is now. Right. Um, and modern medicine, I mean, is so young. I am. I love me- reading medical history because it makes me feel so much better about the current <laughs> state of medicine. And I'm like, all right, it's not that bad. You could have had this crap in 1600 <laughs> right. and you would have been dead. Exactly. I mean, you know, like up until the, the early 1900s, people were still you know, grave robbing and body snatching just so that they'd have cadavers to dissect in medical school. Yeah. And I read an account of uh, surgeons, brain surgeons, having to kick rats and cats away from underneath the operating table as late as 1940 mm. during brain surgery, <laughs> yeah. you know? So it's just, we've come so far in such a short... Except that diagnostic error thing. We still yeah, haven't figured well, that out. <laughs> we're working on it. So yeah, it's um, technology has really changed things for patients. I also think that the the younger generation of doctors, the ones who are in medical school right now, um, I think you know older doctors might view, a lot of them view patient support groups online with a lot of disdain mm-hmm. because they think we're all sitting around wallowing in it and whining to each other right and self-diagnosing with all kinds of wacky diagnoses right and that does go on to some extent you know but the majority of my experience in online support groups is that you find in every group there is a handful of patients who are really really smart and they've read all the journals and they might even be doctors themselves Mm -hmm. i have tons of doctor friends who have pots and that's just like, wow, we've connected on that level right. that would never happen in an office visit. You're right. never going to have a doctor. Um, well, there are a handful of exceptions <laughs> that I know <laughs> of, but that says, oh, by the way, I have this unusual chronic illness too, yeah. you know. So, um, but the infor- I, and like, it's so wonderful that there are, doc- that there are people with chronic illnesses going into medicine. But yes. the training that is required to become a doctor mm-hmm. is actually a huge barrier for a lot of people with chronic diseases. And I think that that's really unfortunate because it would be awesome if we had people yeah. treating people who actually knew what it was like. I think we're seeing more of that, actually. We have um, a board member at Dysautonomy International who was um, a college student when we met her. And she is off pursuing her PhD right now in in neuroscience, focusing on autonomic disorders. That's so cool. And um, she's also thinking about going to um, PA school to become a physician assistant. I've I've dabbled with the idea of going back to medical school, but I'm a lawyer, and if I was feeling well enough to go back to medical school, I'd probably just go back to working full time as a lawyer because I loved I loved my career. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the research grants that DI has been able to provide? Sure. Um, So since our launch uh, in October 2012, we have funded $308,000 in POTS research grants. And, um, you know, some patients have questioned, well, why do you only fund POTS? I would love to have a couple million dollars so I could fund grants in every type of dysautonomia. But as a board, we've decided to focus on the one area where there really is no other research grants. Uh, Syncopal disorders have been studied for many, many years. There's 10,000 journal articles out there on different types of syncope, and there's a lot of research that already goes on in that field. Multiple system atrophy 
has um, its own organization called the MSA Coalition, and we are friends with them. We're very involved. We, they come to our conference every year. We go to their conference, and they've raised, uh, I don't know exactly how much, but quite a bit of money for MSA research. And uh, so, you know, that kind of, in terms of primary autonomic disorders, that kind of leaves um, POTS, AAG, which is super rare, and pure autonomic failure. So we've started with POTS. Um, that's also the most common form of dysautonomia that causes more disability than any other form. Mm -hmm. It's not the most common form. As I said before, neurocardiogenic syncope is more common. But POTS causes more, more people to have disability than any other form of dysautonomia. So we're, we're focusing on that now, and as our fundraising capacity expands, we expect to expand to other types of dysautonomia. What are the specific types of research that you're focused on now? So um, since our launch, we've funded, we funded one study on, um, uh, two, we funded two studies on different types of treatments for POTS. We've studied, um, we've, sorry, we've funded a uh, retrospective chart analysis looking at different um, autoimmune markers in POTS that Svetlana Blitzstein did at, up at SUNY Buffalo. And that came out with some very interesting results. Um, we funded, let's see, Vanderbilt had a study on, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the drug. It's POTS brain moment. It's late, folks. It was a drug study. I think it was like, um, maybe it might have been Adderall or oh, okay. uh, Ritalin or something. It was one of those drugs. They were right. looking to see um, how that... Methylphenidate, maybe? Yes, that was it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Raj will get mad that I forgot the, the drugs that he was doing. <laughs> we funded that. And um, Julian Stewart at New York Medical College is sort of the master of... Uh, cerebral blood flow in, in orthostatic disorders. So we studied, uh, we funded a study uh, that he did mm -hmm. looking at that. And he's uh, doing a new one now, right? Yes, he has a new one we, that we haven't funded, but we actually are helping him. Uh, in addition to funding research, we provide other support to researchers to anything we can do to expedite the pace of quality POTS research, we are doing it. So we are helping him recruit for a study on droxidopa in POTS. Mm -hmm. As you might be able to tell, we were both pretty tired by this point and completely forgot to talk about the POTS antibodies research that Dysautonomia International has been able to fund. After finding evidence of a specific type of autoantibodies in a small group of POTS patients, researchers are further investigating a possible autoimmune basis for POTS. This research is exciting because it may lead to a possible biomarker for diagnosing POTS. We know it's real, but having this kind of diagnostic test would help reinforce its legitimacy for those who remain skeptical. If the condition does turn out to have an autoimmune basis, it also opens the door for possible targeted treatments as well. After finding autoantibodies in a small number of POTS patients, researchers are now looking at a larger number of patients with the help of Dysautonomia International. They've used their annual conference as an opportunity to collect samples for use in this larger study. Can you tell me a little bit about the conference that you guys do every year? Sure. Um, our first year, we actually were having a little chat on Facebook, and a teenage patient said, hey, it would be so cool to meet you guys, <laughs> to, for all of us to meet each other, hang out. And six months later, we were at a conference with 150 people. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that was our first year's conference in uh, the summer of 2012. Our second year, the conference grew to 250 uh, maybe 275 people. And this past summer, July 2015, we had 450 people. And um, 
we actually could have sold another 200 tickets. We just were space limited, so we yeah. had to close off the ticket sales. Um, it's Each year so far, we've held it in D.C., just because that's an easy city for everyone to get to, and the East Coast has a higher population density, so there's more people here. Right. And a lot of the autonomic experts are based on the East Coast, so it's kind of just convenient. Mm -hmm. uh, we also do it in D.C. because the day after the conference, we do Dysautono Dysautonomia Lobby Day on Capitol Hill. And this is um, a really, really cool part of the conference where we invite patients and caregivers and the physicians to come to Capitol Hill and advocate for issues that are important to our patient community. Um, and it's been great. We, we actually have like permanent contacts in different congressional offices. They know us now and we're coming. And so when we have specific legislation that we want to push for, now we've, we've built up a reputation amongst some of the, the offices as, you know, people who come back every year. Because um, a, a lot of organizations go to Capitol Hill for like one day and mm -hmm. they never go back and then nothing gets done. But we feel that, you know, we need, as a community, we need to go at least once a year to Capitol Hill and meet with as many House and Senate offices as possible. And also agency staff. So typically our our conference guests will go and meet with, um, this year we met with over 90 House and Senate members. Oh, wow. And our board members tend to go meet with the agency staff. So I've met with um, the head of the uh, National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke and actually got invited to speak at an NIH conference, which oh, was really exciting. neat. that's exciting. Yes, they had no idea about POTS, so we gave <sighs> them a little bit of an intro. <laughs> um, and uh, we've met with the FDA staff, a, a big issue going on, uh, and I'm not, depending on when your, your podcast airs, um, midadrine is a drug that a lot of people with a lot of different types of dysautonomia use, and the FDA is threatening to pull it off the market, not due to safety reasons, but because of some technicalities that the drug company who initially got the drug approved never did the proper studies they were supposed to do um, after the drug was approved. So um, that's going on. There's going to be a hearing probably this winter or early next spring. So we've been meeting with the FDA about it for two years to try to make sure they know how, like, this is critical. Like, we need to keep this drug. <laughs> um, and the conference itself is, it's tons of fun. We First and foremost, we want everyone to have fun. Um, because some of us don't have enough of that. <laughs> yeah. And I, just something to point out that a lot of people might not realize that a lot of uh, the conferences tend not to actually involve any patients at all. And yeah. I think that's something that's really cool about the one that you guys do. So what, what we do at our conference is um, we, we don't follow any rules. We have <laughs> a patient conference going on at the same time as a physician conference and they're in the rooms right next to each other. And we mix the doctors and the patients for every break, lunch, dinner, you know, we, we get them to interact as much as possible. And believe it or not, the physicians love it because they, you know, they see us in their 15 minute window in their office visits or in their lab doing some study on us, but they don't really that often get to see us in our, in our natural environment, <laughs> you know? So um, I think, to me, the, the best research discussions I've ever had about dysautonomia happen at the hotel bar <laughs> at midnight during the conference. That's where the doctors are hanging out and, uh, you know, 
they, they even at their own physician conferences, a lot of the the most interesting and important collaboration happens, uh, you know, in a casual setting over dinner or something. So having the patients have an opportunity to interact, and the doctors that come are so friendly; they're willing to talk to us. They, you know, they hang out and they answer everybody's questions. It's just a lot of fun. And the patients, a lot of us. Um, have never met another dysautonomia patient in person. Mm-hmm. So, it's so, it's so it feels so amazing to be in a room with 450 people who totally get it. Nobody yeah. thinks you're crazy. Nobody doesn't believe you. If you need to just put your feet up and chug a Gatorade, nobody gives it a second <laughs> look. They might yeah. offer you their own Gatorade, you right. know? So it feels great to be in that supportive kind of environment. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who was just diagnosed today? It's going to be okay. And then probably a lot more after that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I would say trust your gut. Take time to learn about your illness from credible resources. Unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there about different forms of dysautonomia, um, often put out by very well-intentioned people. But I would say, um, you know, the Dysautonomia International website, everything has been validated by physicians who are the top experts in the field. So I'm a little biased, but I think our <laughs> website is one of the best <laughs> for uh, patient resources. Um, learn how to use PubMed.gov. This is a great resource with all kinds of journal articles uh, about all kinds of different diseases. Realize that you're not going to get better overnight. This is, even if you fully recover, it's still going to take time and it's baby steps. So every day, try to do one thing that improves your health and over time that adds up and hopefully you will get back to a better place in your health. That's great. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for talking to me and for sharing your experience. Thank you so much for having me. And that does it for the first episode of In Sickness and In Health. Thank you so much for listening subscribe and stay tuned for everything we have to come and keep an eye on your podcast feeds or our website for the other episodes in this series celebrating dysautonomia awareness month we're posting a new episode every day this week and we cannot wait to hear your feedback please rate and review us on itunes it helps other people find the show and tell your family tell your friends tell your doctors but most importantly Don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.